Type 11. Unseen Factors. Right. Reading of a personal excerpt from Noah Thompson, head of the cult group known as the Circle of the Divine. Date unknown. More help from Deep Blue this time around. My mysterious benefactor is still looking out for me, apparently. I've been monitoring all the channels within which I do my research, and it's paid off. Deep Blue must have known what I was watching, but... The page with the original Rodriguez statement from all that time ago has received one comment a link to a PDF file titled as Excerpt from Personal Writings of Noah Thompson from Before the Circle. It was deleted almost immediately once I had downloaded it. It's essentially what it says. It serves an interesting purpose, sheds light on Alton's place in all of this, and specifically on who he hunts. Maybe it'll help. I, um, I hope it'll help. I still don't feel like myself. And I'm tired. Right. Begin reading. I was a young man then, and I had no idea of the beauty I had witnessed. But this is what I saw that night. My first encounter with what would become the central focus of my existence, the very crux of my life. I had just dropped out of college and was working a dead-end job to stay afloat. Stacking shelves and unloading boxes every day of the week so I could keep living in a shitty apartment and eating cheap food. My parents wouldn't support me, even before I left the college degree they were paying for and they wanted. In their eyes, a successful or even acceptable life would have meant me somehow sticking out the accounting course I despised, only to make a high salary in a job that I would hate even more. Instead, I had ended up making minimum wage in a worse job, but None of it matters now. It's behind me, it isn't part of my life anymore, and I could never have imagined all I would become. I had spent that last day working behind the store, unloading crates from delivery trucks and unpacking their contents to be put on the store shelves. It was hard, back-breaking work with one break at the workday's midpoint which I was encouraged not to take. My manager would fly off the handle at anyone he deemed lazy or, in his words, unmotivated, as if anyone, sane or otherwise, could ever have been motivated to work that job for him. I had been paired up that day with one of my co-workers, Charlie, and we worked on unloading a crate of what clinked like glass bottles. It wasn't a day any worse than others, not to begin with. Charlie had always treated me ever so slightly better than the others. Where others would barely see me, barely pay me the slightest of attention, he would at least make small talk, ask me about the weather, inquire into my thoughts on the game yesterday. He wasn't a friend, he didn't matter, but just like everyone else, he only interacted with me for as long as he absolutely had to, but it was still more than anyone else I knew. He was a stocky man in his mid-thirties who could effortlessly convey crate after crate from truck to storeroom and back, 
I was, by contrast, a wiry and overworked college dropout, and I had to strain to manipulate even the lighter boxes. Our day had all but finished, and there was only one crate left, but it was too long, too heavy, and too awkward for either of us to carry alone. I lifted one end while Charlie got the other, and together we managed to lower it down from the truck and to the ground. As we carried it to the storeroom, my back aching and my arms burning, but my grip firm on the sharp wooden edges of the crate, Charlie stumbled. His right hand slipped from under the box, and the corner he was supporting plummeted onto the concrete floor, splintering with a crunch, but more importantly, spilling the crate's contents, wine bottles. About thirty glass bottles of expensive wine tumbled down a set of concrete steps and shattered in a glossy dark red heap at the bottom. Charlie and I looked at each other. We knew this would get us fired if the manager found out, and so we agreed to cover up his mistake. I would stay there to collect the broken glass while he retrieved a mop to clean the liquid now pooled at the base of the steps. I cut my hand open on the glass, but I was only able to hide half of it before Charlie returned with his manager in tow. He had told him that I had dropped the crate and was trying to cover up my own mistake. I was fired on the spot, obviously, and I still remember the way Charlie looked at me. As I was crouched over the mess at the bottom step, my hands full of my own blood, wine, and broken glass, he peered down at me from over the manager's shoulder the way a person might feel after discovering they've stepped on a snail. Faintly remorseful, but mostly unconcerned. Like I was nothing. Like he couldn't really see me and could never know me at all. I walked home through the cold night with a crudely bandaged hand and no job. On my way to a dirty apartment that I knew I could no longer afford with no friends or partner or family to talk to and knowing that my parents would never take me in. I had hit rock bottom and my life had nothing. Things have a way of finding you, don't they? As I made my way dejectedly under an overpass, I noticed a man clad in muddy, tattered clothes, leaning against the pole of a streetlight ahead of me in the otherwise empty street. He swayed slightly, and I assumed he was drunk. He looked homeless. I tried to rein in my disgust at seeing him. Soon enough, I wouldn't be any different to him, that's what I thought to myself. Still swaying, he glanced up and met my eyes. I think he must have noticed the luck in my eyes, the dreadful and hopeless emptiness that was my life before I knew what lay outside it, because he produced a bottle from his coat and offered it to me. Wordlessly at first, we sat on the roadside and took long swigs from a bottle of something sharp and black and head-spinning before, soon enough, there was none left to drink. I asked for his name, Michael, he told me. We exchanged the stories of just how our lives had brought us here. He reacted to my dismal tale with more sympathy than I could remember anyone extending to me in my life, but the story he told me was... something. According to him, just a few months prior, he had been a financially stable man, working high up the chain in an office, but he started to be plagued. Bouts of amnesia, losses of consciousness. I asked if he'd seen a doctor or a psychiatrist, and he replied by telling me that he had done everything in his power to solve or stop or even alleviate this problem. But it wasn't just a mental issue, he told me. There was something deeply wrong with him. For all the world, he felt as though his own mind was weakening and being pushed away from his body. I told him he sounded crazy, because, as I have said, I was young and I knew so little about the world around me. He just 
gave me a blank look and continued describing his woes. He told me that sometimes he would have lapses out of consciousness and control of his own body, lasting hours and hours, and they had been getting longer. He told me in a shaky tone that sometimes he would regain consciousness with blood on his clothes, but no visible cuts or bruises on his body. The way he spoke, even after a half bottle of something wickedly strong, it was so clear and rational and so tremendously sobering. It almost convinced me in that moment that what he was saying was true, but I didn't know. He finished, and we sat in silence for a few moments before I heard him exhale slowly. I looked over to see him sat motionless. His drunken swaying had stopped, replaced with an iron stare and a rigid posture. He was glassy-eyed, staring dead ahead into the night, unblinking and barely breathing. I had no idea then that what I was looking at would soon be as common to me as sleeping or eating. I put my hand to his shoulder and shook him, but as soon as I touched him, his head lurched to the side, lining up his eyes with mine without the eyes themselves ever moving. A painfully wide grimace of a smile crossed his lips as the set of inhuman eyes seemed to peer through me. This definitely wasn't Michael who now sat beside me, and I sensed an overwhelming feeling that what sat there now meant me harm. I stumbled back and its eyes stayed where I had been, but as soon as my footfalls became louder, the eyes snapped in my direction and finally to my face again. I could swear now that the last look on that thing's face was confusion. It looked dazed, like it didn't quite get something. I sprinted as fast as I could down the street, hearing Michael's body keeping pace behind me before I rounded a corner and scanned desperately for a pedestrian or an open and lit building, but there was nothing. All that I could see was a parking lot full of empty, dark cars. I dashed to the nearest one and threw myself to the ground behind it, trying to hide. As I sat there, trying not to make a sound, I heard that thing run into the lot and I saw it in the reflection of a car beside me, twisted. It moved forward as if it was still unsure of how to walk, each foot falling in an irregular pattern on the ground, stabbing in a surreal, arrhythmic pattern. It kept moving, getting closer and closer with each second that I spent cowering behind the car. Just as it passed my dark hiding spot, its eyes probing the darkness, seeming unsure of whether I was even there, the headlights of a car opposite mine flashed on and illuminated me. I froze. The thing with Michael's face wheeled slowly and its eyes swept past me like I wasn't there. It was still unsure of where I was. Its eyes didn't seem to react to the light, either pupils still wide like those of a cat before it pounces on its prey. After a few seconds of this, it turned on its heels and locked onto the driver of the car whose headlights shone in my direction. The thing ran towards him and I took off in the opposite direction. That was the last I saw of it, but certainly not the last I ever saw of them. I had seen them and their infinite beauty for the first time, even if I didn't know it then. I had received the greatest and only blessing of my mediocre existence. It would lead me astray, of course, into the church trying to seek solace in the words of others, but I wouldn't stay. My path was different. It is different. And it will remain different from anything else, because that night I had seen them. I know that now, and... I had learned of my own value. I had seen them, but they were just like everything else in my life. They couldn't see me. And this was a magnificent thing.
and reading. You know, I really wish that Vincent Cooper hadn't died. I mean, I never knew him, but he wasn't a religious freak, which is really good enough right now. I have more in common with him than anyone else tied to this whole mess. This reading does give me one point of interest. Apart from his possessed victims, Alton has apparently killed three people that I know of. I now have a theory of a shared trait. In all three cases, the individual killed had a confusing, obscuring effect on the possessed individual themselves. I obviously have direct proof in Noah Thompson's case. He believed himself invisible to them. Judging by how long he remained successful in handling them, then maybe he was. And we know Alton killed him. Gareth Bancroft had a confusing effect on whatever controlled Peter Wicks in the lighthouse. Alton is almost guaranteed to have killed him. Vincent Cooper... I have no evidence. But he survived a significant amount of time doing research that evidently touched on some nerves. And yet the only thing successful in killing him was Alton. It's not really a leap to join the dots and make an assumption. I need to know how these individuals crop up. Is it random? Are there rules to this? Is it something innate? Or... As always, I need more. And as always, I don't know where to get it. So that's just... that's great. In other news, uh, I lost Alton. He broke the predictable little pattern he'd fallen into while tailing me. I don't know where he is. I don't know whether he just became aware that I was watching him. I don't know whether he was always aware and this is just yet another ridiculously convoluted plan that I know nothing about because that's really all that all of this is. I don't know where he is. And I'm not sleeping, so I need to find him. He's, I mean, he's obviously a threat, I just, fuck. I need to find him, and I need to sleep. End tape. Hey guys, it's Evan again, the guy who does the voice. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Outside Tapes. We are as grateful and as appreciative for all the feedback that we've been getting, all the response, everything. It's been fantastic. You guys are great. If you do want to help to support this show, then the best way you can do that is to just tell people about it and help get our name out there. As always, you can follow us on Tumblr, on Reddit, and on Instagram, all at Outside Tapes Podcast. Thank you so much. Talk to you in two weeks' time, and goodbye. The Outside Tapes is a podcast created, written, and produced by Liam Brett and Evan Daly. This episode featured Evan Daly as Alfie Greaves. Thanks for tuning in.